everyone. Welcome to the CSPI podcast. Uh, this is Richard Hanania. I'm joined here today by uh, Garrett Jones. Garrett, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Happy for you to be here. Um, can you tell the audience a little about yourself, your professional background, where you're working, uh, you know, what your research interests are? Yeah, I'm an associate professor of economics at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. Um, my work has been really interdisciplinary over the last 20 years. I started off as a monetary economist, uh, moved towards studying economic growth. And um, since then, I've been doing a lot of work on institutions and why they differ across countries. Um, my first book with Stanford University Press was Hive Mind, How Your Nation's IQ Matters So Much More Than Your Own. And the second book um, is more of a political science book, a public choice book, as we call it at George Mason. It's entitled 10% Less Democracy, Why You Should Trust Elites a Little More and the Masses a Little Less. So yeah, you're not you're not shying away from controversial topics in the in the GMU tradition. Uh, you know. No, and 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 in the GMU tradition, we we stick close to very mainstream research that often hasn't e- either made it out into the public voice, made it out into public channels, or that just hasn't been synthesized to tell a complete story. So that's really what I've done in both of my books: is take things that I think of as quite mainstream social science findings and uh, try to pull the threads together and tell a story that I think an audience would um, find interesting. Yeah. I often, I often find that, you know, you often, there's some results in the literature that academics tend not to promote or that the media and most people we hear about social science through uh, tend not to um, bring to our attention, but often there's things that are, you know, just politically explosive. Um, and I think that yeah. your, I think that your book, you know, 10% less democracy, which I, which I read when it came out last year, uh, you know, I think it certainly falls into that category. Uh, so, you know, just to begin, what's, what's the case against, what's the case, uh, against democracy, or at least a little bit less democracy than we have right now? Well, the case for some degree of democracy is really strong. And Amartya Sen, the Nobel laureate, he nailed this down, I think, as well as things get nailed down in social sciences, which is, um, to sum it up quickly, there's never been a famine in a democracy. And if there's one thing I want out of my democracy, out of a government, it's, uh, that it not starve people to death. <laughs> yes, he, that's an advantage. Yeah, his um, his uh, key anecdote about this, he has a lot of data, but his key anecdote is that uh, the last famine in India happened just before the British left. So when India was a colony, there were famines every so often. And surely there were a lot of people arguing why it was structurally, there was some structural reason or some cultural reason why there'd be famines. British left, famine stopped. Um India didn't get rich overnight, and India did not become capitalist by any measure for quite a while. But nevertheless, um, just a a moderately well-functioning democracy, a non-utopian democracy, was able to eliminate widespread, rapid increases in death. That's the case for. um, That's part of it. Um, The case for some elite influence, the case for a, a moderate degree of oligarchy, shows up in a lot of different parts of government. So... um, I, uh, as a monetary economist, you know, we monetary economists know that uh, independent central banks, central banks that are kept away from the levers of democracy seem to get you lower, more stable inflation and no worse and maybe better economic growth. So, you know, money growth lending can be very politicized and that politicization just seems to be only bad news. Yeah, well, it does seem as though handing over your monetary policy to some um, out-of-touch economists seems to get your nation a lot of benefits and 
negligible costs. And if there's one lesson we try to teach in economics is that it's that every time you see a front, a free lunch, you should buy it. Um, so keeping monetary policy out of the hands of the voters seems to be a good idea. Keeping it out of the hands of elected officials seems to be a good idea. Um, another piece of evidence for 10% less democracy I saw when I was working in the US Senate. Um, I was a Senate staff for a couple of, uh, two different times. And each time I saw that as senators draw close to re-election, they just start behaving a lot differently. Um, they, you know, you might call it pandering to voters, but they're doing more than just flying home a lot to shake hands and to kiss babies. They're actually changing the way they vote. And by the standards of economics, at least, um, politicians are less likely to support the things that, that economists find um, to be good for growth, good for economic prosperity. Uh, one version of this comes from uh, Hillary Clinton's own anecdotal experience. Hillary Clinton voted for every single free trade bill her first four years as a senator, and she voted against every free trade bill, every free trade bill her last two years as a senator when she was getting ready to run for re-election. So to me, that uh, and to other researchers in the field, that illustrates this general trend, which is politicians um, really want to give voters what they want, especially right before an election. And often what the voters want is bad for the voters. Yeah. So the what you say about free trade is not controversial among economics. I saw some, uh, you know, the Chicago, uh, there's something they do at Chicago where they pull different economists. Yeah, the IGM. Yeah. And they were asking about uh, whether American trade with China has been overall been good for the country. Um, and it was uh, of those who answered, it was 100 percent who said yeah. yes. Um, and if you watch just, you know, I follow a pretty, you know, not, I don't follow like, uh, a representative sample of the population, but I follow a lot of smart pundits. And I think if you've, <laughs> I think if you pull those pundits that I follow, I think it would probably the majority say, say no. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe it's just, I'm interested in a, a weird subsection. I think about my followers, you know, if people I was following was all libertarians, maybe be a different case. Some of them, some of them are, but people who are not a libertarians also sometimes have interesting things to say. And this is even, you know, this is an elite subset of the public and they still just have very negative views towards trades with China. Uh, so it really does show you just how to, out of the mainstream um, uh, economists are. And that's usually when you hear, you know, in our culture that elites are out of the mainstream, it's usually a criticism of the elites and somehow trying to say that they need to get with the public. Um, but why that should be logically, yeah, I, I don't see. And I, 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 get, I gather you feel the same way. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I think we leave a lot of things to experts and there are very good reasons to do that in some cases. I mean, we leave surgery to experts, not to random people off the street. Um, we leave the design of smartphones to experts, not a randomly selected jury um, drawn from the population. A lot of areas where we think that the experts actually know more than the average person. and. Um, you can actually you can actually test some of these things out sometimes, right? But um, it seems like a pretty good default rule that um, folks that there's there's real expertise, and the handing some authority over to the experts probably has some high benefits and low costs. But what I do in my book is I don't just take it for granted. I actually try to look at the evidence, right? So economists look at the evidence for handing over central banks to uh, nerdy economists, and you know, we can roll the tape. We can see that inflation gets lower when central banks get more independent. We can see that unemployment rates don't get worse and maybe get better. 
So um, similarly, we can look at evidence around the world for what happens when we hand uh, uh, the legal and regulatory system over to judges who are more independent of the political system, um, folks who have longer terms. And it, again, it, it's just correlation, but the correlation uh, is that you seem to get more economic growth when a lot of your legal and regulatory system is administered by sort of the deep state. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's not just correlation. I mean, you have some, you have some good, um, you have some good, you know, evidence that it's a little bit stronger than that. So you have, you have at least one uh, regression uh, discontinuity design. Uh, do you remember this one where you talked about the, uh, uh, whether localities get treasurers, like treasurers? Oh, yeah. This is a very nice one. This is uh, what about treasurers? My colleague Tyler Cowan blogged about it on Marginal Revolution. So um, in the U.S., especially in California, um, state treasurers can be either elected or appointed. And um, city treasurers, excuse me, city treasurers can be either elected or appointed. And it turns out that when your city treasurer is elected, you seem to pay a higher interest rate. And there's no other noticeable benefit from having an appointed an elected city treasurer. So switching from an elected city treasurer, democratically accountable, to an appointed city treasurer, who can be fired sort of at will, um, you seem to get uh, about a half a percent lower borrowing costs every year. And that adds up to quite a bit. That's probably the salary of one, maybe two government employees every year for the typical um, California city. So yeah. Um, and the one, the regression discontinuity angle is a way of saying um, you can compare some cities where they just barely voted to make the treasurer democratic versus just barely voting to make the treasurer appointed. And so you're looking at those bare cutoff points, the people, this towns that just barely uh, switch one way versus the other. And it's a nice way to, to identify causation. So whenever I can do that, I look for something like that in the book. So. Yeah, I mean, that, that's great. You know, the, the theory behind that is that if you voted 51% to be, to have a democratically elected treasurer versus 49%, uh, cities shouldn't, or locales shouldn't uh, systematically differ based on, based yeah, on. Those, uh, yeah, the towns that, that were 49 versus those that were 51 were probably the same or very similar in all the things you can't measure, all the well, what about. Um, they, those should be pretty similar across those kinds of cities. Yeah, Another yeah. Way, just look at the very same city before and after treat the election as an event study um, and, you know, do the pre and post comparison, comparing the city to itself rather than comparing one city to another. That gets you the same result. Yeah. Uh, just to go back uh, to what you said about uh, democracy never having a fandom, a uh, famine, I was just trying to wreck my brain. And um, the Irish potato famine, well, would that count? That's the best counter example. You're right. <laughs> Got to go back well over a hundred years for that one. Um, and there is an interesting question here of whether um, the, uh, you know, the, whether the a representation of the Irish in Parliament was something we would think of as real representation. So um, between ver time-varying religious restrictions on whether Catholics could actually vote um, and the sort of extremely strong bigotry of um, a lot of the British elites against the Irish. So it's uh, democracy may not have been the thing we'd really call democracy when it comes to thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard. But, because but you're also going back 100 years. So I'm saying, look, you got to go back 100, more than well over 100 years to come up with an example, you know, 
<laughs> well, I mean, it, it's hard because when people people say this stuff about um, uh, you know n- never having you know war or civil war or these other things, I mean, it, when you but the way you define democracy, I'm not saying the way you do it, but the way people define it, usually it, it's already pre it's already pre selecting for something, right? It's a peaceful transition of power, right? So uh-huh. you already have elites who are not killing each other, right? And yes. and so like yeah, when elites are not killing each other, that correlates with a lot of good things and is it is that democracy or is it just because by definition a democracy has to have elites who are not killing each other and maybe that's the that's the important thing yeah, so that, that you'd want to be more expansive and check and see if maybe all the other places there were there were a lot of other places that never had famines and almost all of them were places that had autocrats with uh peaceful transfers of power right? yeah, yeah something like monarchy for instance right that would be a good thing to check yeah, yeah. So I mean, right. So yeah, exactly. But I mean, but I mean, the, the point is taken. I mean, in general, again, like, you know, the colonies had all, you know the India's, India, you know, India under the British had quite a lot of famines, and that was a stable kind of regime as you could have, right? That was the, uh, I mean, the, the the Queen of England was the Empress of India, and that was by many standards a, a, a stable regime by by world standards. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, uh, okay, well, f- fair enough. I, I was going to say, I was going to say, you know, uh, how much did, um, yeah, never mind. It's, <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say, well, there you have a state capacity issue where India's, where the British are ruling India, but are they really ruling India? But, you know, for, forget it. I mean, because they, because they have a small, relatively small, right, they control like the trade and they do stuff. But like, do we consider India part of uh, Britain? But okay, whatever. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a viewpoint. I, you know, I get the point that in, in general, these disaster scenarios tend not to happen in democracies. I mean, that's even that's quite poor point. ones, right? That's the thing. That's the striking thing, I think. Yeah, yeah. Somebody, if you're going to go with an anecdote, India would be a good anecdote because they made many other mistakes. I mean, um, and they had many; they faced many challenges as a poor country. You know, they made the big mistake of a quite centrally planned socialism for for quite a long time, and they were already started off desperately poor, and still they managed to not have any more famine afterwards. Wow. Yeah, but green revolution, you know. Uh, it's for, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. We'll, 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 I'm, I'm open to a great debunking of uh, the send point. Um, I did. I did try to do my due diligence in writing the book to make sure that there hadn't been a widespread attempt at debunking this. Um, and it seems like, as as generalizations go, it's a pretty good one. And again, the the, the pre and post is an interesting one. Yeah. So, I mean, I, 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 you know, one thing I, you know, I like that you bring attention to is that basically democracies have uh, measured as measured by economic growth. Uh, there's more variation in dictatorships. So dictatorships can be really good and they can be really bad. So can you talk a little bit about the uh, relationship there? Yeah. Yeah. It's um, overall, it doesn't look like democracies grow faster than non-democracies, um, at least once you look at their general income category, um, even overall. Um but what's, what is true is that the variability of growth rates is higher in autocracies. Um, and one way this shows up is that after the death of a dictator, um, you get a, basically you get a new draw from the dictator distribution. And maybe that'll turn out to be real, somebody really good for growth or really bad for growth. And whereas in democracies, we're probably getting something a little like the law of large numbers in our politics. So who the leader is just matters a lot less. Um, so that averaging out of political and that uh, that democracy is looking for seems to actually work. Um, so it's a it's a it's a nice reminder that it's 
in democracies, I, the, the lesson I take away from this is that in democracies, um, the so-called great man theory of history probably just doesn't apply as much as in autocracies. Um, individual leaders probably matter a lot more in autocracies than in democracies. It's true in the thing we can measure, economic growth. It's probably true in the things we can't measure, like war, peace, human rights. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's interesting reading about these cases because, yeah, you, you could look at you know both sides of the spectrum. So you could look at Stalin, and I've read Kotkin's biographies of Stalin, and they're very good. And what Kotkin just keeps stressing is that Stalin was unique and he was important and like he wanted to do a lot of crazy things that uh, even the other communists you know didn't didn't want to go as far as he did um, and that's dictatorship and then the other side of the spectrum uh, there's a book called Unlikely Partners by a guy named uh, Julian Guritz uh, he's he's in the he's a China expert he's in the Biden administration now uh, but he wrote a book about the opening up of China after Mao's death and how uh, how the Chinese leadership, uh, uh, Deng uh, specifically, went out and sought out uh, Western uh, experts, and they brought them in. And you know, they, I mean, what they did was really quite remarkable because they basically, yeah, I can't imagine this in democracy. They basically said, and they didn't say this explicitly, but what they basically, at least implicitly, admitted was that the entire their entire system of government, their entire way about thinking about the economy, was just completely wrong. Um, and they and they turn that around. It, it, it's really a remarkable thing. You, you don't see like switches like that in democracy. And if you know if you're if you're Maoist China, that's probably a good thing because you have a very terrible economic system. <laughs> so there, these are yeah. you can see how Mao spent you know Mao spent his entire career uh, thinking he was surrounded by capitalist rotors, and it turned out he was. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I mean, and you can look at the American system. I mean, and you're right about democracy, you know, the leader, people think the leader might not matter that much. I mean, people used to say this when I was growing like in the 1990s. Um, it was a joke on uh, that uh, Clinton and Bush, I mean, Clinton and uh, Dole, when Clinton and Dole were running against the other in 1996, there was a Simpsons episode for people who want to go back. Did you ever, did you ever watch this? No, no. So Not that one, no. Okay, so you know about the Simpsons. You know about when the aliens Halloween uh, episode. So the aliens yes. come to Earth and they sort of uh, they take over Clinton's body and they take over Dole's body. And the joke is they're like saying the same things and nothing matters, right? They're just, <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, and so <laughs> and so this was this was the culture of the 1990s. I mean, people it was sort of cool to say Clinton and Dole. You know, who, who cares who wins? It doesn't matter. Uh, we've gotten away from that in the culture. I mean, nobody like thinks now that. Uh, and of course, Clinton and Dole, you know, did matter for some things. And of course, uh, you know, but, but now people think, you know, there's just massive difference between Democrats and Republicans. And to an extent, you know, there, you know, there, there is maybe more than in the past. But if you just look at how, what different uh, human beings Barack Obama and say Donald Trump are, and yes, then you yeah. look at how much of America has changed under each administration. I think the uh, Trump, the, the, the country changed more in terms of the reaction to Trump. Uh, this hyper wokeness, this hyper activism that it did from anything Trump directly did himself. But you know, what was the real difference? I mean, they had a tax bill, right? They they brought down the corporate tax rate by something like five percent. The top income tax rate went down a little bit. That was the major legislative accomplishment. Immigration became more restrictive. A few things, but the system is pretty much what the system is, right? Yeah, I mean, his. Uh, it seems very likely that a Democrat would have had a much more aggressive COVID response on public health issues. Um, but possibly worse on vaccine policy. Yeah, yeah. So COVID, yeah. So you had COVID, and that made a that made a yeah. huge difference. And yeah, I mean, in foreign policy, which is an area I'm not as uh, well equipped to judge, it did seem like we were 
burning a lot of relationships with like European countries who, um, and with East Asian allies that were actually pretty good, uh, that had been pretty good. Um, I don't, I'm not in a position to assess how much that talking diplomacy matters. Um, tariffs, of course, the China tariffs, um, the trade restrictions with Europeans, um, that was basically pressing a lot of buttons on the dashboard that I think most presidents would have left that back. Yeah, as far as the second quarter by the standards of, say, war, um, invasion, um, the kind of things that would that have that get most foreign policy there. Yeah, I think it matters for the uh, matters for the uh, a lot of the countries that we target through sanctions, which is our which are underrated in their importance in war than it does for uh, the American people. So, sanctions on Venezuela, Iran, and Cuba under the Trump administration they were increased and they were uh, uh, they were they were pretty crushing. I mean, they really had some humanitarian effects. So, I think for those countries, it really really mattered uh, mm-hmm. who the president was. Um, and I, you know, I think, you know, Bush would, you know, no Democrat would have gone into Iraq, uh, in 2003. That was, that was a specifically the Bush administration. Yeah, so, that was a Bush thing. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's some IR theorists who've written articles and books trying to argue the opposite. And I just think their arguments are just terrible. They ignore the context of it was, they, you know, they say they point to, well, public supported war with Iraq. Well, yeah, after the, after, a you know, uh, a year, a year plus, propaganda campaign from the top of the administration, then yeah, Democrats voted for the, the war too. So it, it was really an elite thing. Um, as far as what Trump was doing, um, you, you're right that, you know, like the talking and, you know, the, the, the sort of the way we talked about allies in relationships. But if you look at, for example, where American troops were, Mm-hmm. Uh, very little, very little change. Actually, you know, I have I have something coming out soon. Uh, there's been little change in where American troops have been since about 1945. So with all yeah, the things that true, are yeah. that have been happening, and the U.S. was just as you know committed. I mean, he said you know NATO, you know whatever. If if you know if there was a Russian invasion of you know Poland or something, I mean maybe it would have mattered a lot. But as far as like where troops were, uh, even um, I, you know I don't know about the trade relationships, but I don't think there was like you know. Uh, you know, these things are determined by geography and, you know, market conditions anyway, um, to the, to the, uh, to a great extent. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think, I think in foreign policy, maybe you, where you'd be looking for, for wars, definitely. I mean, in the end, the president makes a decision. It's a binary thing. Yes, you go to war. No, you don't. Um, But as far as the pattern of sort of alliances and where the U.S. is in the world and what it's committed to doing, yeah, the the changes between uh, Obama and, and Trump are minimal. Um, I think that's I think that's certainly the case. Now, I'd like to uh, return to this uh, uh, point you made, where you said that uh, the Iraq War was an elite-led thing. I would like to um, take that on a bit because I think it was actually a Republican elected official-led thing. Um, oh, it I was mean. a GOP administration, and it was people who were elected and their close policy advisors. I don't think it was the State Department lifelong bureaucracy, uh, you know, the deep state that was pushing for this. And I think, as you may know, there's not much evidence that academic uh, international relations scholars were pushing for the Iraq war. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was defining elite to sure, sure. President yeah. and his, <laughs> and his, his yeah, yeah, yeah. officials. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. And you're right, the State Department, you know, that's interesting. There was a um, yeah, well, for Iraq, there was a, there. There's been polling of IR professors and you know what they thought about the Iraq War, and most opposed it. Um, yep. The the major figures in the field um, took out an ad in the New York Times, so this had people. I, I pulled it up in advance of our meeting. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so it really depends on which experts. But then somebody um, uh, somebody went back and counted the op eds in the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. 
um, and they were overwhelmingly pro-war. So elite, who, were, who was signing these folks, these things? Uh, what do you, who was citing these things? What do you mean? Like these things, these, that, uh, these ads or columns or whatever. Are they uh, elected officials doing this? Are they? Um, oh, oh, the, the op-eds. I think, yeah. that, I think it's, I think it's a think tank. I think it's a think tank people. Um, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Between academia and elected. And the think tank people in the government are sort of, the, there's a revolving door. So a lot of the, there's a lot of overlap and there's uh -huh. a lot of, uh, back and forth. So those people, so, you know, if you want to ask whether the experts got Iraq right or wrong, it really depends on uh, which group of experts you're focused on. If you're thinking. Yeah. About, so it's an interly debate. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Not it, an elites versus masses debate. Yeah, exactly. And the masses, I mean, the masses were, were, were pro-war, but you know, they were influenced by, by elites uh, too. Um, so yeah, I mean, um, so yeah, foreign policy is just an interesting place to think about these things just because the public really doesn't know anything. I mean, they no, have they a personal experience with it like they do with social security or something. They often don't have very strong views. Uh, so there's a lot of sort of maneuvering for elites and there's a lot of, you know, uh, attempts to control the narrative because it's just so easily malleable mm -hmm. um, compared to a lot of other things. But yeah, so let me ask you, uh, how, do, how do you get to 10% less democracy? Because it seems like you know, yeah. Why ten percent? Because you have the you have the you have the famine example. Okay, you want something resembling a democracy. Um, you know why? I, I, and I know you know there's no formula here. But why do you say no? 10%? There's there is no formula. But I I do take this one cutoff from a, a, a paper that was co-authored by Bill Easterly, um, where he showed that if you just look at countries that are in the top twenty-five percent of democracy scores, um, in those countries. Um, the government almost never kills its own citizens. And even just moving down from the top 25% to the next 25%, there's a sizable increase. It's not huge, but it's noticeable. And so I wanted some way to capture that um, you'd be willing to dial things down to give a little bit more insider influence without at all risking the things that we care a lot about. You know, um, and also, you know, I, I talk in the book about what I think of as a democracy laugher curve, that there must be some kind of bliss point. Nobody really wants 100% democracy. Technology makes it much more possible than ever before to use, you know, smartphone plebiscites or regular voting or randomized polls that would help get bring voter influence into government on a regular basis. We could be at 95, 98, 99% pure democracy if we wanted, but nobody wants that at all, and nobody seems to use that as the standard. So we we don't want to be at zero. We don't want to be at 100. We're currently maybe if you wanted to pick a number like it. 70 or 80%. So I, I want to pe get people thinking along a continuum. And I want to get people to think that if you make a few small reforms, it would have high benefits and low costs. And then after you implement those five or 10 reforms, those you can then, you can then go reassess it later. So I'm hoping that after this, um, that as Congress goes and revisits um, policy after um, the COVID crisis, one thing they'll think about is making the FDA and the Centers for Disease Control more independent of Congress and the president. Um, I think Congress and the president make, uh, make for bad policy in those areas, and they especially make the CDC and the FDA very risk averse. Congress punishes failures um, dramatically. Um, so it's better to not do something and not get in trouble rather than to do something that might possibly have a bad outcome. So Congress makes the bureaucracy very risk averse, and it would be good to get rid of that by making the FDA and CDC a lot more like the Fed, a lot more like the federal. 
Okay, well, it's okay. interesting. You, it's interesting you bring the FDA and the CDC up because, like a lot of people, I've been thinking about the performance over the COVID nineteen crisis, and I was actually going to ask whether this contradicts your view because the. the uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll reference uh, Philippe Lemoine's uh, report on the cost-benefit analysis of COVID lockdowns. And I think at this point, I think it's clear that they are, they're not worth it. I mean, they maybe save some lives. It's hard to tell in the data, but the costs are absolutely massive. Um, and if you listen to something like Anthony Fauci, and then you compare him to what a lot of elected officials are saying, Fauci is much more cautious on these things. Uh, to go into the vaccine uh, issue, uh, I remember there was a New York Times article talking about how the Trump administration was exercising this undue influence with the FDA saying, go faster. And, you know, I, I'm sure you've seen all the arguments that we've been probably too cautious on the vaccines, too. So is the is the lesson from this that democracy is, a, is you know, we need less democracy with the FDA CDC, or do we need more democracy? These public health officials are just out to lunch. Well, I mean, uh, the Trump administration's push on vaccines um, was very important, and it's probably saved a lot of lives. Um, um, but if we're, we need to build policies for what we think is the normal situation. If we're going to change our institutions, we should think how are they likely to work enduringly over the long run. And there, um, I. I am a big fan of giving more weight to what's known as congressional dominance theory, the view that the federal bureaucracy is to a large degree just always keeping an eye on what Congress wants and is always afraid of Congress. And Congress rewards massive conservatism um, in action, um, not approving things. The drug you don't approve will never get you called before Congress. Sure. So they have a strong bias toward not doing stuff. And because everyone fears like, you know, that congressional subcommittee pulling you in and all the cameras showing up. So uh, a longer time horizon would, I think, have gotten us a lot better COVID policy. And just looking at just looking at how we think about the Federal Reserve, I think, is a good way to think about this. Um, yeah. So I, I think what you're, I think what you're saying is we can't sort of judge these public health officials um, in a vacuum. Right. Yeah, they're they're creatures of Congress and the president, but Congress cuts the checks. So don't forget, we can't forget that. Yeah, I, I think you're right. So, like, you know, if 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 Congress had just said to the C, uh, CDC, and but but you know, yeah, the, the, if Congress had said to the CDC and FDA, I think in the beginning of 2020, do what you think is best. I think it, it was too late. I, I think they've they've already been socialized in this environment. That if you pulled the plug on the congressional uh, oversight or the presidential influence today, I think they would have done exactly what they've always done. Do you agree or disagree with that? I, I mean, I agree they would have done the same thing, um, but at the end of the words of Congress are incredible, right? Um, uh, credible commitments are really important in politics, and they're hard to come by. So, uh, top congressional leaders signing a letter and saying, CDC and FDA, we're going to leave you alone for the next five years, go do your thing, that's not a credible promise at all. You know, yeah. uh, one kid, one kid dies because they stuck a COVID test swab too far up their nose and somebody's getting called in front of Congress, right? Somebody's careers on the wall. So yeah. just safer to not approve those, those um, COVID home tests. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, one reason we might think that's not the case, because if you've looked at how public health officials have talked, like in the media, people not necessarily uh, employed by the FDA and CDC, they seem to be just completely in line with whatever the FDA is doing at any particular moment. So doesn't that sort of argue against that this is really Congress? That's the best comeback um, is, to, is to point to 
public health officials as being very conservative. There, I'd be interested in something systematic. I mean, this is a case where who you follow on Twitter really matters. Um, and um, so there's, so it's hard to tell how much of that is hurt following behavior, but it does seem you're right. Public health officials have been um, quite cautious throughout the pandemic. So it's, it is hard to tell what the, what the proper level of caution is. Um, of course, people shouldn't be sitting at home um, by themselves wearing a mask. Yeah. I'm, I still wonder how many millions of Americans are doing that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, the thing about, yeah, public health, uh, you know, the, the commentators, pu- uh, pundits, et cetera, uh, the thing they seem to be is like they're cautious, but they're also just biased in favor of whatever government is doing. So I mean, think. Uh, exactly. So if government had been doing something different, they would have, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so maybe they maybe for that too. Yeah. Know. Yeah, maybe they don't matter. Maybe yeah. As <laughs> yeah. vaccines started getting approved, it became okay to say that it's okay to approve vaccines, right? Yeah, it's it's very odd. I mean, something was very you know something was very off about this class and their performance during this pandemic. And you know, I hope people continue talking. Yes, they should they should be scrutinized. And my my colleagues at GMU have, especially Alex Tabarrok, has been vigorous in you know calling for in particular more aggressive approval of vaccines. Um, we would have had a much different world if we had have it, if we had given um, emergency use authorization for vaccines back in September or October, say for the, the extremely elderly people in nursing homes. Um, that could have saved a lot of lives over the winter. Yeah. Uh, yeah now and- we know it would have saved a lot of lives during the winter. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, relatedly, so you have a chapter in your book called The Hard Case for uh, the, the Hard Case of the European Union. Uh, yes. Not the hard case for the European Union, the hard case of the European Union. Uh, I like you open the chapter with a Welbeck quote. I mean, which, you know, I haven't seen before in a social science book. He says, Europe is worse than anything because there isn't even the parity of representative democracy. It's a pure oligarchy, Europe. Welbeck is sort of a reactionary. I'm surprised he just he loves democracy that much. That's actually that's actually a little bit interesting if you read his novel. Yes, it is. Yeah. I would and, probably... and what I do then in the chapter is I say, actually, by normal standards, um, Europe is very democratic, and um, there are these elected officials who actually give Europeans uh, policies that they that they seem to want. Um, and um, the the bureaucracy pays close attention to what the um, to what the European Parliament asks for. Um, they pay close attention to what the heads of state who run the European Council um, are asking for. And it does seem to be the creation of these. The government itself acts like the creation of the of the um, of the countries that make it up. And so that was sort of my puzzle: is wait, you know, if if the EU is pretty democratic, um, and at the same time the EU has a lot of um, elite, fairly independent institutions like the European Central Bank. Um, uh, national court, a regulatory bureaucracy that's kind of independent. You know, why isn't it doing better? And my answer is that that I give in the chapter is that Europe is held back a lot by the same thing that you know people complain about in the U.S. Senate, which is this strong institutional need for supermajority rule. Um, many European decisions um, in the European Union have to be made unanimously. Many others have to be made with a strong supermajority vote, a lot like the U.S. filibuster in the Senate, and that slows down a lot of decision making and creates a lot of power for holdouts. So I think a lot of the complaints about the dysfunction of Europe are complaints about democracy, not complaints about oligarchy. 
So um, unanimity rule, supermajority rule to me and to democratic theorists, these are democratic. Supermajority rule is democratic. Unanimity rule is democratic. Um, and so if your problems are being caused by these supermajority rules, um, that's a problem of democracy, not a problem of elitism. So let's figure out, let's diagnose the biggest source of our biggest problem. Um, and I think that's, that's a big deal in the European Union. And I think it's under discussed. Interesting. So when you, when you, uh, uh, you mentioned the U S Senate and, and the European Union. So when you, when you see a, um, a unanimity rule or a supermajority rule, you see that as more democracy because, because some people would see that as, as less democracy, right? I know I, I see it as just as democratic as equally democratic. And as my colleagues Buchanan and Tulloch pointed out in their great book, Calculus and Consent, um, as a matter of ethics, there's actually a strong case for supermajority rules or even moving toward unanimity rules. Um, they may be impractical, but um, democracy means the voice of the people, not the voice of the majority of the people. So 5149, it's maybe a handy decision rule in a lot of cases. It is a good shortcut. It, you know, it has some good theoretical properties, like you know, you'll always get a decision if there's a majority rule. But there's it's not as exciting from an ethical perspective right? for the classic reason of the, the, that the majority can tyrannize over the minority. Best way to ensure that the government doesn't exploit minorities is to require minority consent for government decisions. Right. Okay. And so let's talk about, I mean, the next chapter after the EU, actually, before we move on from the EU, what do you, what do you, uh, it, you would grant that it's, would you, do you see it as a, would you grant it's it's just as would you say it's just as democratic as um, a typical uh, median European government, or do you, do you see it at least on the spectrum where a national government is more democratic than the EU? I mean, it's obviously weirder, right? It is this weird clutch. Um, if you had a country where there was a parliament, if you had a, a European country where there was a parliament, and where there were say ten super senators who ran, um, who themselves chose. The national president, I guess you'd say that was just as democratic, but we don't have any actual governments in normal life that look like this, right? The EU is such a weird club, but it listens, but they're listening to the voice of the people in repeated elections. These elections are not shams, they're genuinely competitive um, elections where voters are kind of informed, engaged, and paying attention to the stakes. Um, and as I point out, I think the, um, the refugee crisis of 2015 is a sign of how democratically responsive the EU was. Um, it took a few months, but um, it, by any measure, uh, migrant flows that were deeply unpopular with the majority of European voters, that's something that the EU took seriously. And migration flows from across the Mediterranean have dropped off dramatically since then. So that to me, that's a symbol of democratic responsiveness. They may have done a very bad job in some ways, but that's what we expect out of democracies. You listen the voters will be kind of sluggish they'll give the voters sort of what they want yeah do you think the, do you think the eu is uh, you know held back by its um do you think it, it might com combine sort of the worst of all worlds because what i was going to ask you about oh that's a great that's a great angle I think. absolutely because i was just thinking about the vaccine performance brexit you know brexit you know it seems like it seems like a perfectly designed experiment to see you know who's going to do better and the fact that the uk has done so well relative to europe I think it's just embarrassing. policy world, vaccine rollout, definitely, right? Much, much better. Um, no, I, it, it does seem clear to me that the, um, the European Union is stuck somewhere between the U.S. Constitution and the U.S. Articles of Confederation, right? 
Um, the need for supermajority consent for so many decisions makes it hard to have a, you know, um, what old political theorists called vigor in the executive. It's just hard to make long-term plans when you're always held back by um, the need for supermajority consent and doing some kind of often behind-the-scenes deals to, to pull in that extra consent you need, right? There has to be a lot of uh, negotiating, a lot of cozy and bargaining to try to get to 60 or 70% consensus on things. Um, so the Americans know the Articles of Confederation was apparently a disaster. It's what we all learned in our books, in our history books. And it seems as though the EU went a long way toward the Articles of Confederation approach, which was also the terrible approach that the um, American Confederate States of America went with, right? They also decided they, that every state needed to have its own voice in the government. This is, um, it's very hard to keep governments functioning at a high level when um, every single element of the organization has the power to withdraw on short notice or can withdraw its consent on short notice. Yeah. So, yeah. And so the next chapter, I mean, you, you go into a system that's uh, clearly, right, clearly less democratic, and that's Singapore. So can you talk about Singapore a little bit and what it says about uh, the possibility of having too much democracy? Yeah. I mean, so, um, you know, the so Sing I, my title is that Singapore is flourishing with 50% less democracy. And there I just use a conventional um, democratic uh, democracy score. Um, so Singapore is you know, a wonderful place uh, to visit. It's, uh, it is an economic miracle. It is a place of human flourishing. It's a place where migrants, both low-income and high-income migrants, voluntarily come to, to try to earn money. Um, sometimes they want to go home afterwards. Sometimes they want to stay. Um, it's not a utopia. Of course, bad things happen there. But uh, considering where the country came from economically and looking around at its neighbors in the region, Singapore is just has pulled off something that has been studied a lot, but still deserves to be studied more. Um, but what it lacks is a lot of the human rights that uh, Westerners and many people in around the world treasure. And it, at the same time, it is only moderately democratic. So it is one theorist calls it a semi-democracy. Um, so they definitely listen to the will of the people. They're not just afraid. They're not just doing just enough to, to stave off riots. So they are listening to the voice of the people, but it's a sort of a very controlled voice. Um, and um, that correlation between democratic participation and political freedoms does hold up there. So it does seem as though it's been tough for any country in the world to pull off anything like uh, liberal human rights in a country that has very little uh, democracy. And Singapore is illustrating that once again. So. You know, Singapore has a lot of the good things that you would expect out of uh, a country that had 10% less democracy. It has a pretty independent central bank. It has a regulatory system that's focused on the long run. Its political leaders have long terms. A lot of the things that are themes in my book. Um, but at the same time, they go pretty far toward restricting personal freedoms and um, democratic expression. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew quite openly controlled the amount of political competition that existed in his country. He wanted some competition, but uh, not too much. And it's, it's good to look at a country that's gone a little too far, that's gone too far, right? Um, that's, but is still a model for others. So countries can have a lot of mistakes and still be well worth learning from for positive lessons. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that this, you know, humility and learning from other countries is important. You know, one thing the U.S. foreign policy uh, seeks, you know, sort of explicitly, but, you know, more implicitly, is democratization for, you know, everywhere, always. And I've always thought, you know, that would be, you know, that's a terrible risk for humanity, right? Because you never know what problems humanity is going to face. You never know what's going to change. And to have sort of everybody uh, with the same system, I think, poses something like an existential risk. Um, so I'm, I'm, for one, I'm actually glad there's some variation um, in the kinds of, uh, you know, states that countries have. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, civil liberties and um, democracy and these things that people value. I wonder, do people really value them or, you know, when it, when it comes down to it? Because you look at migration flows, right? And so you look at, you have poor countries that are uh, democratic. You have rich countries um, that are not democratic. Uh, you know, you have like, uh, you know, these uh, Gulf monarchies and you have Singapore and the countries that are, uh, and if you look at how people, you know, vote with their feet, they go to the, they go to the rich countries without democracy and they tend not to go to the poor countries uh, that, that are democracies. Uh, so doesn't that indicate that people's revealed preferences show they care a lot more about wealth than they do about democracy? Um, a, there's, that's evidence for that until you look at the fact that these migration flows tend to be short-term contracts. Um, so the, these countries that folks are going to, so, so people go from say the Philippines to work as guest workers, um, in Gulf States, um, they're working on one or two year contracts and overwhelmingly, um, people are allowed to come back. And, uh, so, so there, it's basically the, the contract, by keeping the contract short, you're basically limiting the ability of the country you're going to, to really explore you. Right. So, um, people may want, people may be willing to look at these, unfreedoms in short doses, but not be willing to tolerate them as much in longer doses. Um, permanent migration. I'd, I'd be more interested in this question of permanent migration to uh, low freedom, high prosperity countries like Gulf states. And I think there's a lot less of that. I think a lot of folks do want to get away. Yeah. Well, yeah, you talk about, you know, repression in the Gulf states. I just have a very unique culture. I don't know if they even, I don't think they would allow you to stay permanently if you wanted to. So I don't, I don't know if that's a possibility. Yeah, true, true. Yeah, yeah. And, and especially the culture is just sort of at the extreme end of sort of repression. So it's not like a, you know, a normal uh, dictatorship. I think if you live as a citizen, you have to follow some form of a, you know, Islamic law. So, you know, I think that's, I think that's hard for people. Uh, but but I guess I, I, I'm safe. I'm comfortable saying that there must be some, there's some kind of rank order for say the global guest worker population. And um, there is a notable, there, there's gotta be a notable preference for countries where you feel like you're going to be treated better by the police if something goes wrong. I, yeah, I, I, I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's true. Um, you know, if you look at, yeah, I'm just trying to think of examples like Russia, for example, is much more, uh, it, it's wealthier than some of the central Asian states. So they do have, I think, permanent uh, migration, legal and illegal. Um, Ukraine has had recently, it's a more democratic system than Russia, it recently had some flow to Russia, but I think it's related to the war. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there, it is, it's, it's maybe an interesting research project, somebody to go Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting and important to, to watch and see what happens over the next 10 years with Hong Kong, right? Because they're trying to build a model of a exactly, low yeah. freedom, high prosperity region. Um, and a big question that I think uh, big corporations are going to wonder if they're doing business in Hong Kong is... How credible is the right of exit in those countries? So, if somebody from Japan or Australia goes there to work for a financial corporation and they blog the wrong thing, or are they going to get arrested? So, yeah, this is well, going to be something that people are going to wonder about for quite some time. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it hasn't stopped a lot of corporations from dealing with mainland China. So I don't, I don't know why in Hong Kong it would be. Yeah, uh, we just don't. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, let's talk about China because you talk about Singapore and China is sort of a more extreme example in in level of democratization, but also a remarkable success story. I mean, economists talk about it as a great, you know, the longest period of sustained economic growth in, uh, in, uh, in, re- in least recent history. Um, so how, how do you think, how do you think about China and where it fits on in, in this debate about, you know, democracy and its value? Well, China is the world's poorest majority Chinese country by a long shot, right? Yeah. <laughs> so to look at China as a success story um, for productivity, I think is a, is a mistake. So basically what they've been doing since the death of Mao is overcoming the, mis- overcoming the mistakes of the past. Now, there probably are important governance problems in a country with a billion people. We've only got two of those, so we don't have a lot of, you know, a huge sample size to draw on here. But it seems reasonable they just might fight, face unique problems because of that, unique challenges. Um, but overall, looking at China as a massive success story um, is... Mostly a mistake, I think. Like, uh, if we look at Taiwan today, I think that gives us a much better sense of where China would have been if the other side had won the revolution. Um, and Taiwan's a much better place to be by any measure, I think, than China. So, at least for if you're the, uh, a random person in China versus a random person in Taiwan. So, whether we look at uh, Taiwan or whether we look at Hong Kong, Macau, or whether we look at Singapore, these other majority Chinese regions have done really well. And Taiwan is such a good counterexample because they're the people who just, they're the people who lost the civil war. So. Yeah. So I'm looking at, uh, yeah, some data on GDP per capita. Uh, yep, China yep. Right now is uh, 10,000 about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Taiwan, it depends a lot if you go by PPP or uh, uh, just regular GDP. And it's either 25,000 or, or 50,000. Uh, wow, that sounds extreme. I don't know if I, I don't know if I made a mistake in my searching. I don't know the the PPP. No, no, I think the PPP Taiwan one is very high. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, fifty thousand. And I, I like the way you put it. Yeah, China is the poorest country. Majority Chinese country. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, somebody brought up the same uh, thing to me with uh, Sweden and Swedes in the United States versus Swedes in Sweden. Yes, uh, this came up on Twitter quite a few years ago. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, on. Uh, the blogs back when those were a thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you you know the author, Tino Senandaji. He's yeah. like from Kurdish. About that, actually, a little bit of a back and forth on this. Yeah. Right. So yeah, yeah. I guess yeah. So I guess the Swedish Americans for the audience. Swedish Americans are substantially richer than Swedes in Sweden. So. Yeah. yeah, and I bet it's probably the same. You know, you look at America as more violent than uh, than uh, uh, the Nordic countries. I bet if you looked at, I don't know if you did looked at Swedish Americans uh, violent crime rate or whatever, it's probably it's probably very low. <laughs> I think. I, I think, think that's. I think that's uh, fair to assume. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and so yeah, and so you're you know you're the idea there is that government. Um, you know your system of governments how you f- pick your leaders isn't necessarily the most important thing you'd rather be um you know you'd rather be uh in a swedish country you know the you'd rather be in a, a you know a country with you'd rather be in sweden under any form of government than you would in most of the rest of the world is that right i i yes i think um and uh indeed i'd rather be in singapore than in most of the rest of the world right i mean i think the oecd countries are this weird exception these couple of dozen pretty rich countries a weird exception. Singapore is um, not a model for rich country democratic reform, um, but it is far better than just about any place that has existed in human history. So, yeah, and I think yeah, I think we can't ignore the 
the scale of China and the, you know, they're just having a 1. you know, 1.4 billion. I mean, you're like you said, it, we have no other examples. We don't know if that's necessarily harder, but it, it feel it feels like it's got to be. It feels like it's yeah, yeah. And Singapore is not a tiny country, for instance. We often people often point to Denmark as being the, the sort of model country that many should strive for, and Denmark's great. Um, but Denmark and Singapore have about the same population. Yeah. These are not these are these are medium-sized countries around nine million people or so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is you know, yeah, that that's interesting. I mean, that, that's an interesting way to think about you know the the uh, these issues and um, yeah. So I mean, China is a, you know amazing and something you can explain if you do not take into account human capital at all, right? So people will compare China to. Ethiopia, or they'll compare it to India, you know, large countries, Pakistan, whatever, um, and say China's just growing at a much faster rate, doing a much more amazing job. And you you would say that's not the comparison. The comparison is other Chinese or other East Asian people, right? Yeah, I mean, there does seem to be these cultural ties that do that have important statistical power in predicting stuff. Um, whether we think of that as uh, culture or human capital um, really matters less. Than, than thinking there's some kind of there's some kind of peer group you want to compare yourself up against, and I the obvious one is which side the side that lost the civil war, right? The the KMT lost the civil war. They had to move off to Taiwan, and um, they did they they built a government there that had flaws like the like every other, and. Nevertheless, they built an economic miracle that's far bigger and faster. That's far bigger than the Chinese economy, right? So, yeah. Do you think there could there could be a head start, right? So, uh, good twenty year head start. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, f- fair enough. Do you, Do you think there could be though uh, problems that China might be better equipped to deal with? I mean, one thing that I've been looking at in the, some of these East Asian democracies is the uh, turtle fertility rate has you know absolutely cratered. So it's it's about uh, close to one around there in Taiwan. Uh-huh. It's one point seven in China, which is you know uh, not not the greatest, but higher. Uh, do you think if you might become we might come to a point where um, uh, you know these the future of these countries is threatened by this you know sort of inverted pyramid? And, you know, people are uh, too old and they're not having children. I, I tend to think having children is, you know, good for its own sake. So I think it's, a, I sort of see it as a societal failure at some extent if uh, countries aren't aren't having, you know, a, a decent uh, fertility rate. Uh, is there something that maybe that China might be able to solve through whatever, you know, it takes either through uh, extreme uh, economic interventions or cultural interventions? Might it be better positioned to solve these problems than, say, Taiwan or the East Asian democracies are? Um, and, well, we're still going to have to wait to see if that effect sticks as China gets richer, because China really is a lot poorer than those other countries. And the uh, fertility transition seems to be pretty strongly linked to prosperity. It's not the only thing that drives it. Um, obviously, the, the China's one-child policy of many decades was able to, you know, had a big influence, right? It's a, that's a sign that government, governments can do big things. Um, so my first point is that we should wait and see if what happens is China gets richer. I, I suspect their fertility rate will keep falling. Um, this prosperity, it's hard, it's been hard to stop that everywhere else. Second, um, you know, I think there are these geopolitical reasons to worry about a falling fertility rate that like somebody might take you over or something. But you know, normal, my, normal macro theory uh, reminds us that when the population growth rate falls, um, each generation is gets to inherit more from the past. So this 
I, you know, in, in China and in Japan, there are all these uh, uninhabited homes and there's this culture of people moving into uninhabited homes, uh, homes in rural areas, very cheap because of the falling um, population, right? So this is something well worth, so I'm open to the idea that falling fertility is some kind of long-term economic problem. You can obviously create it with an aging population if it happens quickly and severely enough. But all those, all those young people inheriting a lot of wealth from their parents and grandparents, that's an unalloyed plus. And so we have to compare one, compare one against the other. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I appreciate the economic perspective that I do think about most things in economic terms at the same time, maybe I'm have enough of a conservative in me that I just think it's, it's bad for its own sake. I think that, uh, uh, you know, just totally humans are good. I mean, I'm some somewhat of a pro natalist. Um, and so utilitarian think, would get there too, right? More people, more utils. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think it probably, but yeah, my view is probably is more, yeah, utilitarian based. And the fact that these countries are producing fewer people, a utilitarian might say, well, these are, this is a disaster. <laughs> it's better to be poor or to be a dictatorship or be whatever. And, you know, have, have more people, right? Be, be poor. Um, yeah. Anyways, it's, it's, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, value judgments that, that go into there and who knows, you're right. Who knows if even China can solve this problem countries do get wealthier, they have this demographic transition. It might be in part because, I mean, there's a, you know, a, a culture that emerges. And so maybe it's the, this, and democracies tend to take a, a hands-off approach to cultural things. And maybe a dictatorship could do, you know, would do something different. So we, we don't know. We haven't, we haven't. Yeah. Known and it's for good or ill, right? That's what we know from the past is that you get higher variance and yeah, yeah, exactly. So you look at the Gulf Arab states who have been a fallen falling birth rate, but you know much more much higher birth rates than you would predict based on their wealth. And that's got to, there's got to be a cultural explanation there. You know, it's it's easy to see what the cultural explanation would be. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, uh, okay, yeah. So uh, let's just uh, move on a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about uh, you know current events and politics, just because the the news are the news is just you know ideally suited about these issues because you have these questions about um, uh, the filibuster, which we touched on. Uh, we have questions about making Puerto Rico and uh, DC states. Um, let me ask you if you if you think uh, there's a way I think about Trump, and I want to know if you see it as sort of the same way. Uh, I think Trump is sort of the purest form of a democratic leader. Um, if you watch him talk or you watch his interviews and, and just knowing, you know, people who I've met in life who, uh, who aren't interested in politics, who aren't, you know, haven't often haven't been to college. A lot of them really, really love Trump. And what they mm -hmm. seem to love about him from my perspective is he sort of sees the world more the way they do than does any other leader. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when he had his Twitter account, you had just a, like, you know, you had a, uh, you know, a sort of a, um, you know, you had a view into his mind and he's basically watching TV all day and saying, yeah, yes, Hillary Clinton, I hate this anchor. I like this. I dislike that. <laughs> and I yeah. figured like a lot of the, like, you know, a lot of the people in my life who, who don't like politics, who don't like policy sort of think like that. And I think they saw themselves in him. Is, is Trump sort of, you know, they say things like a threat to democracy. Isn't he the epitome of democracy? Is he democracy made flesh? Yeah, he was, he was very much a democratic leader by, Sort of certainly by cultural touchstone stand. Um, he came close to capturing the view of the you might call the median voter, right? Who's uh, a lot older, a lot older than the typical person um, just graduating from an elite liberal arts college, right? That they, he 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 carries. He, I mean, you said it better than I could, right? He is a Democrat. He is he embodies a lot of the demos of a large portion of America, right? You could say it if to, to distill it more. You'd say it's non-college whites, right? He distills 
that ethos to a substantial degree. Uh, yeah. Not just that group, but to a substantial degree, it seems like he's distilling that ethos. Yeah. Yeah. And, and which I mean, is a large portion of the American electorate, right? Maybe sure. 40%. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a plurality if you just look at you know uh, uh, race and college education. Yeah. But yeah. even his appeal to blacks and Hispanics, any Republican has a especially in the second election. Yeah, exactly. Any Republican has a sort of a tough hill to climb there, but but he tend he seemed to do better than you know at least Romney did. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know if he, he reflects the views of the average voter. It's more in the sense that he reflects the I think sensibilities yeah. in that. Yeah. He doesn't really have, I mean, views on a lot of things. And I think a lot of voters are like that. They're, they're just mood affinity all the way down. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was about, it's about team spirit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, so, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny. I mean, so, yeah. So the, 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 isn't, the, isn't the way we talk about these things strange? Because we seem to just, you know, the way the media and a lot of people talk about uh, democracy is they just sort of use it as a synonym, synonym for good things. And so Trump yes, is exactly. therefore he's not democracy. Right, no matter how much he actually reflects what the people, you know, a lot of the people are like. Yeah, there was a brief window in the first months after Trump was elected where a lot of people on the center left were much more open to saying, yes, we're in favor of the deep state because the deep state is going to stop Trump from doing like the seven craziest things he's talked about on Twitter. And they certainly would have stopped that, right? And the, the, whether you, whatever you want to call it, like the, the judicial system, the Administrative Procedures Act, the slow pace of Congress moving through its decision-making process, these things all together um, are, are not democracy full stop, right? Democracy full stop is plebiscites on everything all the time. And um, that's not what anybody wants. And it's very hard for people who um, support our current system of government to actually say that. You have to say that what you're supporting is democracy. And at some point, somehow you still have to dodge the question of why you don't want 10% more democracy. Yeah. And, but, but even, even the, you know, the, the referendum on every issue, even that doesn't work because, you know, somebody who studied public opinion polling, I mean, who gets to write the question has a lot of power, right? True, true. <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's almost, you know, it's almost, a, I mean, you could, you could ask the exact same question. I mean, this is Kahneman and Tversky or any political scientist will tell you. You could write the exact same question in two different ways, get a completely different result. So you're going to have to sort of vote on the, you know, if you want a pure democracy, you're going to have to vote on the wording of the question. And then you're going to have to vote on the, you know, wording of the question that writes the question. <laughs> and it's sort of, but of course, progress. in our legislatures all the time. And ultimately, a lot of voting when, when members of the House or Senate walk down into the well to give their vote, they're often just engaging in the same kind of mood affiliation, right? They're not just judging things on the state of the legislation itself or whether it's better than the status quo. It's some kind of team spirit thing that's going on. So it's not as though real world um, legislative processes are that much better than the plebiscitary process. Now that said, if you really were, that you could take other steps toward 10% more democracy, like making everything two-year terms or even one-year terms. You know, the ancient Greeks, they thought that anything longer than a one-year term was really just an invitation to oligarchy. Um, we, we treat two years as a starting point in the U.S., and almost no country in the world has legislative terms in yeah, and that's one. Of, yeah, that's one of the themes that one of the recommendations in your book, you, you call for longer terms. Because we saw in the Senate that longer terms make for braver politicians. Yeah. Uh, what about, um, you know, a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of debate about uh, democracy and, you know, whether we have more of it or not. It seems like the debate is actually a little bit strange because you'll have something like the Electoral College or you'll have the Senate. 
and then and then I think Republicans will say something often say something like, you know, we're not a pure democracy, which is which is true. But what they want is it seems somewhat arbitrary because it, it, it's not you know it's not giving what the Senate does what the Senate does is not give disproportionate influence to elites at the expense of the masses. What the Senate they, does yeah, is because it's disproportionate uh, weight to rural states, right? So it's a weird form of unequal representation. Yeah. So do you think there's coherence to, to that defense of the Electoral College and, and the Senate, or is it just a pure partisan thing? Um, yeah, the uh, I think the, the defense of the Senate is a pure partisan thing. I think the defense of the Electoral College as the idea of, of there's some kind of sophisticated um, defense of the Electoral College, and I made a version of it before, which is that having to win a, a, a majority of majorities um, draws out skills in coalition building that I think is good for democratic leaders. Um, and I think that we, our politics would be much more regional, uh, even more regional than they are right now, if we had a simple, a simple majority vote for the US president. Um, and, you know, I think regional coalitions can be, can lead to bad things. I mean, the one, the one time we had a strong regional break between the parties, we had a civil war. So. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's interesting. So, even though you know Democrats might be right when they say, "Well, look, most of the people are in New York and Los Angeles, so if they disproportionately pick the president, you know, of course that makes sense." You're making a you know practical argument. It's not democracy or not. It's that look, you don't want you don't want two cities that are you know are you know a handful of metropolitan areas more realistically um, that all think the same, uh, just dominating. The rest of the country that um, you know that that's spread out over land that's a, that's a, a you know a admittedly a minority, but still a distinct cultural group, and that's just but that's just not a healthy way to have our politics, right? Yeah, it's clear that our current legislative system has you know has unequal representation, um, but I think one important lesson to draw from um, real world democratic politics is that every country is a bargain, and those bargains that pick off the nation tend to stick for a long time. And revisiting the whole bargain can take you places you wouldn't quite expect, right? So, for instance, the reason the, the EU has the same problem, right, which is um, no country is willing to join the EU unless they're pretty sure they won't get a bad deal. And the way to guarantee that is to say a lot of our stuff is going to be decided by unanimity rule and a bunch of other things by supermajority. So you, new country, don't have to worry too much. Now, that means if you're giving that deal to every new country, whether it's big or small, you're going to get unequal weighting in the voting system right there. You're going to have sometimes it's going to be a bunch of small little countries that can stop things. Sometimes it's going to be a couple of medium sized countries. This unequal weighting of political power is part of the deal that created the EU. I'm sure that 50 years from now, people will start saying it's unfair that a handful of small countries get so much weight. European Union. But if you revisit that deal, maybe a bunch of countries pull out. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think that your perspective is similar to mine in that, you know, we're, we're looking for, you know, we're thinking in terms of pragmatism, you yes. know, we're not thinking in terms of democracy as a religious value, because if a democracy is a sort of religious value is going to say, wherever most of the people are, they, you know, that, that they should pick the president and that's it. Well, me and you say, well, you know, I, to me, there's not a big moral difference between someone who wins 47% and someone who wins 53% of the vote, right? Like maybe that's yes, exactly. That, it's like maybe more democratic, but like, who cares? Like two, 2% of like people who weren't paying attention, who don't care, like 
decide woke up one day decided to vote one way or instead of the other like i'd rather worry about not having a civil war right or not yeah having, having a system that works for human flourishing is the telos and um, a good degree of democracy seems to be helpful for that um but the nice thing is is that when you look at real evidence we can be non-utopian about it when sen said when martia sen looked at what you needed to prevent famines um he didn't say you needed a utopian level of democracy he looked around and he said all you need was parties that are genuinely competitive and a free press. So a press free enough to report bad news about the government, essentially. And that's a pretty non-utopian version of democracy. Uh, a lot of countries can pull that off and are pulling it. Yeah. Uh, let, me ask you, let me ask you uh, another thing about the, the American system, which I've always found sort of odd. I mean, you're, you're right that we talked about how um, uh, people are sort of selective in what they consider democracy or what they not consider democracy. In the American system, um, the, you know, we basically debate economic issues and, you know, somebody could raise taxes or somebody could lower taxes or interest rates or whatever. And, and the courts will not step in generally. Mm-hmm. Um, but social issues, um, things like abortion and gay rights and all that stuff has been taken to a great extent out of the democratic process. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, think that I, and I've always thought this was odd and maybe a little bit backwards because when we're debating the economic issues, you know, there's, there's, there's often a right answer something is welfare maximizing or it's not. In these social issues, a lot of them come down to sort of taste and preferences and values and, you know, these sort of these things that are, you know, harder to uh, sort of grasp. Um, so, you know, it does, does our system make sense? Would it possibly make sense to have the opposite thing where, uh, where the economic policy is sort of technocratic and the social views are just, you know, up, up for a vote and people can vote on them how they like? Yeah, this is a little bit like Robin Hansen's view of futarchy, where we should um, vote on values and bet on beliefs, uh, where you said let, sort of let betting markets um, choose which policy is likely to have the best outcome, conditioned on the goals set by the voters. Um, but, but details being handed over to um, neutral panels and then loosely overseen by democratically elected officials seems like a pretty good equilibrium. I personally, to, to go back to the theme that you brought up there, I personally have wondered why more progressive activists haven't pushed for the courts to create a human right to say a universal basic income, a human right to a sufficient level of social security payments, a human right to universal health care. I mean, why, like, why haven't progressive activists said, why didn't they spend the 70s and 80s or even the 60s trying to get the Supreme Court um, to create a human right to a national healthcare system. It's just, it's a little weird to me where people draw the line at what courts can do and what they can't do. Yeah. Do you think it's just, yeah, I, I wonder, I wonder about that, about wonder about that too. And I wonder how and much. I mean, I mean, part of it is like what passes the laugh test, what can they get away with? Right. So um, what, what, what will voters not totally freak out of? Um, but the, it's, it's interesting that even academics haven't, haven't pushed the angle to any serious degree. Um, it is about these um, uh, cultural issues, these issues about human dignity and scope of private, very private actions that people engage in. That's where the courts have gotten involved a lot. And the business of who cuts checks to whom, they've gotten a lot less involved. 
Yeah, I, I don't know about the laugh test theory because if you look at some of the reasoning on these uh, social issue things, uh, you know, they're they're, they're the stretch. You know, there's quite a, it's quite a stretch. Uh, I remember mm -hmm. I had a one uh, professor in law school who, uh, you know, wanted to. He, he would explain. You know, the, he would he would sort of you know it was a very politically incorrect lecture. He would explain things like, okay, here's a case that has nothing to do and is not consistent with any other legal case we've seen before, but it's about black people. Like that's the rule for this one. It's just about black people and there's different rules and the courts just stepped in in a way that they wouldn't step in for, for other things. Like I think one example I remember is like, you can't, you, you could never compel a state to like do something directly. And I, you know, I'm going to butcher the law. It's been like, you know, 12 years ago, 12 years ago that I, uh, that I, I, I uh, took my course, but it was something like that. And like, they just decided it was different in some civil rights case. And a lot of cases are like that. Um, so I, I will hear from your response from that question. I'm, I don't know anything about that. So I'll step up. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could just look at some of the, you know, the gay marriage and stuff. I mean, they were clearly a break for, they were clearly a break from the past and the way courts had always looked at these things. Uh, mm -hmm. So I don't think it's as much, you know, it, it's inherently more plausible than creating a right to a, a universal basic income. Um, it seems to me that the degree of sort of liberal uh, the strength of their preferences over these things tend to be much stronger on the social issues and the economic issues. If you go to a college and, you know, uh, say something politically correct about race and gender, they'll hunt you down, but generally not if, you know, you advocate for taxes to go too low, right? It just mm -hmm. seems like the energy is on these racial, gender, sexual orientation. Uh, yeah, that, that's true. And that's something that I think the left has embraced as a, uh, it, it, it has turned out to be a focal point that it, it seems that everybody on their side can stick with too, right? So. Yeah. And then it's I would say focal point. Yeah, and then and then like, uh, I think another thing is sort of conservative elites have been happy to pump these things away to the courts because they they tend not to you know either not care or they don't want to deal with them. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think I think there's a lot less pushback on that when the economic stuff I think you know uh, they care a little bit more about. So it seems like an inter it seems like it's been an implicit inter elite bargain that they'll take mm -hmm. a lot of these things sort of uh, off the table mm -hmm. and just let the courts do it, and then both sides are happy with it for for their own reasons. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so Garrett, I mean, it's been great having you on. Um, what are you working on right now? Can you give us a preview of what you're doing? Oh uh, yeah. Well, I'm working on my uh, third book, what I think it was the third book in my Singapore trilogy. Um, and it's going to be about the long run effects of culture on economic outcomes. Ah, so, so the deep roots literature. Yes. Yes. Um, we're still toying with the title, but it might be something like cultural baggage. Um, the idea that people bring things with them from the countries they, uh, they, they, that their ancestors came from, and those help shape their economies in the very long run. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. It seems like a natural progression uh, of your work. Is there is there an estimated time of arrival on that or not yet? It should be about a year from now. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, great. Well, look forward to reading it, and we'll have to have you back on to, uh, to talk about it. Th thanks a lot, Garrett. I really enjoyed it. Thanks very it. much. Thanks for having me.